by father, like many men of his age, is a bit of a war buff. And my sister and I grew up listening to all these war stories and battles of masterful strategy and cunning tactics and heroic deeds. The most memorable ones for us, and I can still remember them today, were the victories that came against the odds. The, the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans uh, held off the Persian army of hundreds of thousands that was marching on Sparta and held them in the narrow pass that could only have six men uh, side by side and they, they delayed just long enough to save the country. Or uh, Waterloo, where Napoleon's terrifying reign of uh, having conquered Europe, he met his downfall when there was a mistake and uh, what he thought was the Prussian, sorry, was the Prussian army. No, I'm going to start again. You can have the outtakes at the end of the service. <laughs> this is what happens on recording day. Beep, beep, take two. My father, like many men his age, is a bit of a war buff. My sister and I grew up listening to all and tell regale us with stories of all kinds of wars right through history now of, of masterful strategy and cunning tactics and heroic deeds. But the ones that I remember the most, and I think probably my sister does too, are the ones that there was a, a victory against the odds. Uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartan warriors held off the Persian army of hundreds of thousands uh, in the uh, in the narrow pass uh, that could be you know could hold six men side by side, and they held them there for three days. The Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon's terrifying reign and 84 battle winning streak came to an end only because of a mistake where uh, what was the Prussian army he thought were allies coming over the hill because the banner was mistaken or, or the battle of the river plate uh, the first naval battle of world war ii where three light cruisers the exeter the ajax and the achilles uh, harried and hounded the much larger and unstoppable heavy cruise of the Graf Spree until it was trapped in a port and the captain decided to scuttle the boat and kill himself. All of them against the odds, winds that were eked out, unexpected victories. Our passage today is all about waging war. That's the language that Paul uses, though it's not a call to enlist in the armed services it's, it's not a, a, a call to some sort of Christian version of a jihad with guns and grenades. Rather, it's a call by God to understand, to engage in, and to support uh, authentic Christian ministry, which will always be a battle. And it will require the right sort of weapons to engage in this war. A war that will be fought, uh, in particular pitch battles and has been right through the, since the time, uh, of the Lord Jesus and will be fought until he returns. And Paul himself was in the midst of a very intense battle as he wrote this letter of two Corinthians that we have begun looking at again. Uh, we did the first half last year. It was a battle for the hearts and minds of the church in Corinth, 
a church that he had planted, a church that he loved, uh, but as a church that also had caused him great personal pain. Previously, that pain had been because of their immaturity. When he'd left the first time, he created the church and established them, and then he went to preach elsewhere. And But him leaving led to infighting and them turning back to immorality and idolatry of their pagan roots. But he'd addressed that in the first letter of 1 Corinthians, and, and they'd come good. But now, sometime later, there's a much more serious threat from outside the church, but weaseling its way in, it's false teachers who call themselves the super apostles and they look and they sound like they've got the goods. They are way more impressive than Paul. They've got better credentials and who've got much more pleasant sounding gospel to share, a gospel of power, a gospel of victory that puts Paul's gospel and Paul himself to shame. And in the final four chapters of this letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul really sharpens the knife to lay the killing blow to these infiltrators. And what he wants to do is to show the church, show the Corinthians, and also to show us how to assess Christian work rightly, to judge what is authentic Christian ministry, which comes with God's blessing and power, and what doesn't, what isn't. And you can see that's Paul's aim from verse 1 of chapter 10 that we're looking at today. Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble among you in person but bold towards you in absence, I beg you that when I'm present I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we're living according to the flesh. You think according to the flesh... Uh, it's not saying that they think that he's you know, sleeping around or anything like that. They're saying he's weak, that he's just pathetic. He's kind of you know, made of the matter of this world. That's what they mean by he lives according to the flesh. And that language of suspicion, of reckoning and of judgment runs right through our passage. You find it again in verse 7. He says, look at what is obvious. If anyone's confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ so do we. Or again, in verse 11, let such a person consider this. What we are in our letters when we are absent, we'll also be in our actions when we're present. Over and over again, to those who believe the lies that are being told about Paul, that he's not God's man and his gospel is not God's gospel and not God's truth, let them reckon, let them consider, let them judge rightly. And the question that God is asking each one of us is, will I be lined up with genuine Christian work, with authentic Christian ministry, with the true gospel? Or will I be taken in by something else, something that's not authentic by a lie? Because what is not authentic may look to be powerful. It may look to be wonderful. It may look formidable even. It may look like the Persian army. It may look like the Admiral Grasbury. But just like them, they are going to lose. Because as I'm lined up with authentic Christian ministry, I'm lined up with the real deal, a gospel ministry that's from God, I'm lined up with something that has all of God's power to triumph over his enemies and tear down strongholds something that has all of God's authority to build his church and something that has all of God's approval 
to grow and advance his kingdom across the world as it has done right from the start. So let's get into it. There are three things that Paul wants us to understand about waging this war. He wants us to understand the battlefield. He wants us to understand the weapons and he wants us to know the outcome. So first of all, the battlefield. Where is this spiritual fight that we're engaged in taking place? Well, it's a fight for people's hearts and minds. And in their case, it was about whether Paul himself was the real McCoy. And the pointy end of the criticism that was being leveled at Paul was that he was two things at the same time that the enemies thought proved that he could not possibly be from God. And they thought they were convincing arguments. On the one hand, they pointed to his unimpressiveness in person. He, he just seems weak and pathetic, bit of a loser. But on the other hand was his sharpness, almost abrasiveness in his messages, particularly in his letters. They were just so black and white, so blunt and hard. Now, we read that in verses 1 and 2, didn't we? About uh, you know, meek, and but his uh, letters are so bold and forceful. It happens again in verse 10. For it is said his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. He's too black and white and forceful when he writes and he's totally lame. He's a loser. He's unimpressive in person. Lame-o. He's not a skilled orator. He doesn't come dressed in fine robes. He doesn't come with dazzling displays or a large retinue. He doesn't come with eloquence. He doesn't come with letters of recommendation or a PhD, which are the sort of things that People are always impressed with, aren't they? Right through history. How do you know someone's worth listening to? Well, you you look at those signs around them. But in Greece, which uh, was where Corinth was a major city of, those things really mattered. They were how you judge someone's value and their worthiness to listen to and to follow. They valued the ability to speak beautifully. They prized form. They were impressed with glitz and glamour. I was reading about one particular guy from the first century in Greece who was very popular around about 100 AD, so slightly after this. His name, which he loved being announced by when he came to speak to the arenas and to the theatres, uh, was, I'm going to read this out, Lucius Vibelius Hipparchus Tiberius Claudius Atticus Herodes. Get that one. You can just imagine him being announced and the trumpeteers as they, as he comes in and, and this full stadium or the convention center and being announced as he comes out in his white jacket with, you know, his all too perfect hair and shining teeth and speaking with the sultry tones of a mix 106.5 DJ or David Blouse as he wowed the crowds with the power of his oratory. It's not too hard to see if that's the ideal of someone who's worth listening to, how the opponents appeared themselves and how they could easily diss Paul as a bit pathetic. Oh yes, his letters really are strong, aren't they, when he tells you how to behave yourself, but look at him. You know, his bodily appearance is so weak. Yes, uh, his correction is laced with sharp bars, but you read his letters, but Listen to him, not much of a speaker, is he? <laughs> not really surprising. I mean, he's a country bumpkin from that Tarsus place, wherever that is. He's not a university graduate from Athens. In fact, you remember the book of Acts, 
when Paul appeared in Athens, that other Greek city, and people said, uh, literally they said, who is this seed pecker who uh, comes with these strange ideas and, and not speaking with all the proper articulation of a first century thinker? Nor did he intend to. He admits that when he came, he came in weak meekness and gentleness and not in great power and not with great pomp. There were no glossy magazines with him on the cover, no fanfare to announce him, no glitzy clothes, no kind of, you know, displays of, of, of power. Uh, one second century work says of Paul that he was a man of middling size, his hair was scanty, his legs a little crooked, his knees projecting, he had large eyes and his eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. Uh, so in a world where appearance really mattered, Paul really wasn't up there, was he? You might say it sounds a little bit like the preacher this morning. <laughs> and it's not hard to see how worldly speakers, celebrity figures, harnessing all the power of the machinery of the age to gather support and garnish their message, might quite easily capture people within this Corinthian church, and particularly those who who might have already felt the sting of Paul's first letter, his criticism about their lack of spiritual maturity and their moral failure. It'd be very, very tempting to jump ship, wouldn't it? But once you see that, it's it's just such a 21st century problem, isn't it? And what Paul is saying is, you've got to look beyond the packaging. Don't judge a book by its cover. A speaker might come with a purple shirt. He, he may come with a huge internet following and lots of likes and clicks and subscriptions and downloads from across the world. They may have even penned several New York Times bestsellers. They may lead a very large church in a cosmopolitan city. They may have spoken on huge platforms with alongside leading figures, but appearances can be deceptive. What you see is not necessarily what you get. You've got to look beyond the packaging. In fact, it's more than just that you've got to look beyond the packaging. There's there's something to the way that Paul was when he was with them and in all his ministry for that matter, which which might have been the subject of their criticism of him, but which actually proved that he was the genuine article. Because look at the very meekness and gentleness that they were criticizing him for. Where did that meekness and gentleness come from? See there in verse 1? I came with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. This meekness and gentleness which they saw as weak and pathetic was the meekness and gentleness of Jesus himself. And and that idea of the meekness and gentleness of Christ and the frailty, humanly speaking, of the cross and uh, and the way it comes across as foolishness to the world, it runs right through the two letters to the Corinthians, right from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where uh, Paul talks from verse 18 onwards about uh, the, the foolishness of the cross and how it appears in a world where uh, people are either looking for power or they're looking kind of for superior wisdom, right, for articulate speakers. But we preach crucified, which is a stumbling block to them, he says. Right through to 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, the last chapter 
in this second letter, 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, For Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. The Lord Jesus doesn't use the bully boy tactics of this world. The Lord Jesus doesn't use slick publicity. The Lord Jesus' triumphant victory was at the cross, which, which looks to the world like he's out of failure, full of shame and contempt. But that is where he bore the sin of our rebellion and, and carried the judgment of God's wrath and so triumphed over Satan. But you might look at Jesus on the cross, as so many people do, and conclude that it's dumb. It's utter weakness. It, it just seems so frail and so feeble and pathetic. And yet he was raised in power. And so in a world of spin and of brash self-promotion and brazen personal publicity where appearance seems to matter more than substance, Paul is saying, yes, we do walk in the flesh. We're weak. We're frail. We're a bit feeble. We're not the best speaker in the world. But don't judge a book by its cover because that weakness and that frailty is is indicative of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It comes from him. Coming in love and kindness and gentleness to save the lost rather than to lord it over people like they are doing. And likewise, the sharpness, the angularity, which they describe as his boldness in his letters, which they also criticise, well, that's just like the Lord Jesus Christ too, isn't it? Standing for the truth even when being hated and ridiculed calling a spade a spade, pointing out the sins of those who need calling to account, the strong teaching, which which is just so black and white. Just think back to the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at last term. And both those things go together in Jesus, both the meekness and gentleness, but also the boldness and plain speaking of the truth. And they go together and they're not contradictory at all because they're both driven by love. Because the truth is the truth that sets people free. Not lies, not spin, not hand-waving, not equivocation, not, oh, yes, some say this, some say that, not gilding the lily, not massaging people's egos, not giving them what their itching ears want to hear, but the truth boldly delivered in meekness and gentleness. That's what authentic Christian ministry looks like. Well, if that's the battlefield, what are the weapons that God arms us with for the fight? You see them there in verses 3 and 4. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. What are they? We demolish arguments and every proud thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. What are the weapons that God arms authentic Christian ministry with? It's not the weapons of the world. It's not bombs and the guns and the tanks and the planes of the armed forces. It's not the IEDs of the terrorist and it's not the smooth-talking flattery of the politician. All of those things are dangerous and can inflict untold damage and heartache 
but they are as nothing compared to the power of the gospel truth, when it is, whether it's spoken in the pulpit or in a small group or one-to-one with between people as ordinary Christians go about sharing their faith. The gospel, that's what changes everything in a person's life. It's what changes communities. It's what has brought down empires through history. See how powerful this plain speaking of the gospel message is when it's wielded by people who come with meekness and gentleness, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and boldly proclaiming it, as Paul goes on to describe the outcome, the outcome of waging war in this kind of way. He says, such a ministry has all of God's power to demolish strongholds and take thoughts captive under the lordship of Christ. That's in verse 3. He says it has all of Christ's authority to build his church. That's in verse 8. And it has all the Lord's approval to advance God's kingdom. That's verse 15. It has all of God's power to demolish strongholds. You might picture the siege of a castle, you know, ballistas and armies gathered outside this uh, thing that seems impregnable, the moat. Looks like you can't even get near the walls. So the walls themselves are so big and so thick that they look impregnable. The fortifications look formidable. But what are the strongholds that God is sending us to tear down and wreck through with the gospel? Well, it's not physical stone, is it? No. the, The strongholds are the worldviews that, that people cling to and cherish and are hiding behind. They're the constructions they've made in their head, the constructions about God, about themselves, about the afterlife, about true spirituality, what they think that is, about human nature, about all sorts of things. And, and, and sometimes they can seem so coherent and powerful and, and strong and, and unbreachable. There's no chinks in the armour. But they're none of those things, right? And they're not those things because they're all based on lies. Because everything opposed to the gospel of Christ is a lie. Lies that people tell themselves from when they're very young. Lies that we we tell each other and we all agree on as a community. Lies that the devil himself spawned in the Garden of Eden that he's still telling today. Falsehoods and lies which make people feel safe and secure and comfortable, which, which are really, really flimsy when you, when you start to poke at them with the truth of the gospel. It's much more like crepe paper than a stone wall. It's just a facade that looks strong and impenetrable, but, but it's nothing. It's, isn't that how it happened with the Corinthians themselves? As Paul spoke about Christ in Corinth, he lectured there in the hall for a year and a half when you read the book of Acts uh, and told them about how the Old Testament pointed towards God breaking into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. As they heard of the life and teaching of Jesus, as they, they, they heard of Jesus being nailed to the cross as God's divine saviour, carrying God's judgment on our behalf, defeating Satan and being raised and enthroned as the king who rules the universe. So, so their thoughts were taken captive. Strongholds were demolished and they were brought under the rule of King Jesus. 
For that message has all of God's power to destroy strongholds and take thoughts captive. But it also has all of God's authority and Christ's authority to build his church. You see that in verse 8. For if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down. It's this ministry of the gospel that God that Christ gives to build up his church. It's not given to break up the church or tear it apart. It's, you know, it can seem divisive at times when things are called, you know, for the truth that they are or the lie that they are. But the gospel alone is what gives the church its foundation. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, it has all of the Lord's approval to advance his kingdom. Paul's confident that that what happened in them as they've turned to Jesus when hearing the gospel will mean that the gospel will go even further if they are but stop but judging by outward appearances and reject the lives of these super apostles with their glamour and their dulcet tones and their fine sounding words which offer false hope. And you see that there in verse 15. He says, we're not boasting beyond measure about other people's labours. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, that is, as you deal with these issues and you come back to reality, that our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what someone else has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. It's this gospel ministry that advances with the approval of God as God's people believe God's gospel and embrace authentic Christian ministry. And it does all that because God is behind it and you know what? God's going to win. It's true historically. It's true personally. It's true globally. Historically, at every point of the history of the church of Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 or so years, the periods of the greatest advance in the gospel, of real gospel impact, have come as this very unimpressive ministry of gospel proclamation has been at the forefront. That's how it happened in the early church, isn't it? You just read about it in the book of Acts, right? They were pretty ordinary people who weren't world beaters, but they went in meekness and gentleness and they went boldly with the gospel and Europe changed, right? In a matter of a few years, within 300 years, the emperor himself had given his life to Christ. And and, and it, it happened in the Reformation, which if you follow the church calendar at all, is what's being celebrated this very Sunday, Right, today is Reformation Day. As ordinary people rediscover for themselves the plain gospel, Europe is set ablaze again. It was set ablaze spiritually and it was set ablaze literally because the ones that held the power, both the, the, the emperors and kings, but also the religious leaders opposed it and tried to quash the gospel, but they couldn't. It was, wasn't carried by impressive people who were showstoppers, the eloquent, the powerful or the impressive. It was ordinary people with the extraordinary message from God going in meekness and gentleness and boldness. It happened again in the 17th century with people like Simeon and Newton and Wesley and Whitfield and others. They were 
They, they were locked out of their pulpits. They were locked out of their churches. Some were sacked and, and had their ordination orders stripped. Uh, congregation members tried to bar entry into churches that they were preaching at in order to get rid of them. And yet as this gospel message was held up in weakness, even so the advance came in. And extraordinary numbers of people through England and the US gave their lives to Christ and came under him and became obedient to him as Lord. Or think personally, what was it that brought your thoughts and your stubborn heart, what laid siege to it and brought it under the rule of Jesus? What was it? I presume, like for me, for most of us watching this and you know, most of us who are going to be there at the church on Sunday, it, it was just ordinary people sharing the extraordinary message of Jesus because they cared for us. For me, None of the people involved in me becoming a Christian were particularly impressive. Uh, an awkward year 11 guy asking a year 12 student he barely knew but kind of admired, I guess, I don't know, uh, asked, asked him, that was me, to come to youth group with him. The nice guy who led the youth group uh, with, a, you know, with a small bunch of weird 20-something-year-olds who were the kind of the co-leaders, the the complete stranger who volunteered to be a counsellor at the evangelistic rally the group went to who who patiently answered the objections of a pimply, arrogant, stupid teenager like me. None of them had shiny teeth. None of them were great orators. None None of them had the body of an Adonis. They were ordinary people with an extraordinary message who brought it in meekness and gentleness, but also they were bold. Bold because they knew the truth and they know the Lord Jesus and they knew that I, I needed to repent and believe and they, they were happy and patient and loving and wanted to sit with me as I worked it out. And think of what God has been doing amongst us as a church over these last few years. The Nepali Hindu, the the Aussie bloke just looking for something to do on the weekend. The the young man sitting across the road in his car seeing the church sign and looking up the church website, which is really tired and out of date. You know, the grandmother whose marriage had just fallen apart, the, the woman who was diagnosed with MS, the alcoholic, the the policeman whose partner chatted with him in the squad car in the rec room and then invited him to church. The, all of them brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ and so many others, so many others. Nothing hugely impressive, nothing humanly impressive in how it happened. Just the proclamation of the gospel from the pulpit sometimes, but mostly as you lot out there have cared for and loved and shared and invited and welcomed and patiently explained Christ crucified in conversations at church and at work and in your own homes and with your neighbours. And it's that same gospel message as it's being taken by ordinary people that is now bearing fruit globally, historically, you can know it, personally, globally, In the last 15 years, there has been the most extraordinary advance of the gospel in unimaginable places, like China, like Iran, 
where people are coming to Christ in their thousands. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world. No, they're much more effective than the weapons of this world. They've got divine power to demolish strongholds. Not because we are impressive, but because God is powerful and because he works through us as we go in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, boldly holding out the extraordinary gospel word of truth and of hope and of life and forgiveness. No one's going to praise us in the end, and nor should they. They'd be pretty dumb to praise things like us that are so weak. But rather, as the chapter ends, let him who boasts, boast in what? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's his work. It's his gospel. Let's go about it with joy and confidence, boldly, but also meekly and gently, holding out this extraordinary word of life. And God will do his work in us and through us. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you open our eyes through your word to the battle that's raging around us, a battle for minds and lives and souls of people who want to hear what their itching ears want to hear, who by all worldly reckoning are lost without you and we can't see how to break through. Sometimes we argue with people and we think they're just so locked in. But Lord, you do extraordinary things. Your spirit takes your word of truth and it drives it into people's hearts and it penetrates soul and spirit. And so we pray, Father. We pray for those we love and we name them now in our minds. Father, please save them. Even after years perhaps of rejection of you, please turn them around. Father, we pray for those we've yet to meet, those neighbours who may move in one day, the people who we're going to bump into down the street. We pray, please, that you would save them. Use us in your work. Father, we are ordinary and we pray, please, that we would never be proud. We do thank you for the blessings you've given us of growth in the church and uh, we pray now as we now have to uh, deal with coming back together and the awkwardness of having so many people to manage and, and we just thank you for that blessing but we pray that we would never be proud of ourselves. Father, help us to boast in you and you alone, to love the Lord Jesus and to never be sucked in by something that's pretending to be authentic but which is a lie. Please protect us from that. Help us not to look at the external packages but to look to the truth and to always stick with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour and King. In his name we pray. Amen.